Boom, we are back again for yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. So, ladies and gents, welcome back. If this is your first time listening, welcome to the Nailed It Orthopedic Surgery podcast. I am Dr. Cole. I'm one of the hosts, myself and Dr. Jay Fitz started this podcast to go over high yield material. But you are now tuned into our OITE review series where we try to go over some of the high yield topics for our orthopedic in-training exam. We know a lot of you all that listen are residents, but we also know that some of you aren't residents. There are a lot of PAs and um, a lot of medical students, some attendings and some reps that even listen to this. So we hope that this review (laughs) is somewhat helpful to you all as well for learning things. Um, But rest assured, we will be back to our normal scheduled um, episodes here shortly with our weekly episodes, but so far this has gotten a great response. So, uh, without further ado, please enjoy us continuing our trauma review with myself and Dr. Spencer Woolwine. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring Drs. Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Now, when we're talking about treating these, you know, they would talk about buttress plating, you talk about kind of lateral lock plating, different approaches. So what are just some situations where you may use a plate in buttress mode? And, it, and I just want to reiterate that it's not uh, a plate can be used in, in many different manners. So a plate can be used in one mode versus another mode. So I know we're seeing a buttress plate, but I guess I, what I should better say is a plate used in buttress mode these tibial plateau fractures so what are some situations where you can use that yeah yeah no one's gonna know what you're talking about if you say hey hand me the buttress plate <laughs> yeah <laughs> but, True. Uh, um yeah so these uh, uh so the buttress and uh, i mean this is harped on an ao course and we've talked about it before but with the b type articular uh fractures and you just uh went over that uh, very nicely with the uh they are partial articular fractures and that's how the ao remains constant throughout every uh anatomic location is b means uh partial articular you're going to use a buttress plate so b for b type fracture b for buttress plate so uh these unicondylar uh partial articular fractures um do require that plate to be used in buttress mode so that the shearing force is uh, inhibited uh, because of the placement of the plate. And then um, the split depression fractures, they although they have the uh, articular depression component to it and you're uh, not, uh, you have to treat that as well, they still have that split in them, which is still a shearing force. So you're going to also use a buttress plate to uh, prevent shearing in the split depression uh, type fractures as well. And then um, a lot of, I mean, almost every proximal tibia anatomic specific plate has options for locking and not locking the uh, screws. Um, What are some situations where you would prefer locking the uh, screws versus not? Yeah, so this is going to be, you know, in patients that have poor 
bone quality, um, you know, these, these older osteoporotic patients. Um, sometimes, you know, some physicians will use this for simple bicondylar fractures. Um, yeah, I know this is highly surgeon dependent, um, but some people may also use those for some, some depression fractures. I know we just spoke about uh, using these for our uh, split depressions using, you know, kind of that buttress plate because it has that split component mm -hmm. for it. But, um, some people may use these for, you know, our just kind of our depression fractures. And, you know, one thing to know about these is, you know, sometimes with these really long plates, you know, those distal holes, like holes 11, 12, 13, uh, when you go to put the screws in those holes, sometimes you kind of want to maybe need to dissect down because you can injure your superficial perennial nerve. And, and another thing I wanted to, what, what is a rafting screw? I heard, I heard that thrown around a lot and I, and I didn't understand it earlier on. Now I do, but what is a, a rafting screw? Yeah. So um, as these, these fracture characteristics, so in a uh, depression type articular fracture, uh, the cartilage and then the underlying subchondral bone are going to remain intact. And it's the weaker metaphyseal bone that is compressed and moved out of the way. So when you reduce that subchondral bone and cartilage back to the anatomic uh, location or articular surface, uh, you have this void underneath it because of the uh, metaphyseal bone essentially was just impacted out of the way. So uh, what these rafting screws are designed for is as you backfill underneath that subchondral bone that you've reduced, you place screws as close to that subchondral surface as possible so that the, uh, the fracture fragment relies on both the screws for support, but also that underlying uh, bone graft that you just put in there so that it uh, doesn't subside. These rafting screws are really designed to prevent this subsiding. And it, I guess this is kind of going a little bit further than the scope of this um, podcast, but um, people will use different techniques for rafting, whether that is a... Uh, kind of mini frag plate, like a rim plate, where they can put a lot of mini frag screws in because of the smaller size and ability to get closer to the articular surface. Or uh, I've seen people use K wires uh, immediately underneath and then kind of cutting them right at the uh, bone surface. So there are permanent K wires that are placed to prevent that subsidence. And uh, I think it's just kind of surgeon dependent and all of you listening will develop your own techniques in the future, but um, just know that these these rafting screws are really designed to prevent that subsidence uh, so that the piece you just reduced remains in an anatomic location. Yeah, perfect. I love that explanation. Um, so uh, as we are, I mean, you talked about you'd want to use a lock plate for uh, these like bicondylar fractures um, and especially ones with poor bone quality. Uh, the trickiest, I think, uh, fragment to fix is really these posterior medial fragments. And uh, are these ones that you, if, let's say that there, it is a bicondylar fracture, but it has a lateral condyle and a posterior medial uh, 
uh, condyle fracture, are you going to fix those with a single plate or are you going to try and do two incisions and two and dual plating? Yeah. So I think most would prefer or, or choose that ladder that you're saying you use dual incisions and you talk about dual plating that. So you talk about uh, making it, you know, typically it'd be an anterior lateral approach. If that's where your fragment is, you make your anterior lateral approach and reduce and fix that fragment. And then you make a separate posterior medial approach and put a plate on that. And so a lot of times those are due to those shear forces. So this plate is functioning kind of in an anti-glad or, or buttress manner. So you, you use dual uh, dual incisions in, in, in two different plates. And I think Dr. Githens, we have an episode with Dr. Githens that we talked about tibial plateau fractures. He did a, a great job kind of breaking that down and talking about the approaches and, and different plate options. Uh, but, but speaking about this posterior medial approach, what is that interval that is being used for uh, for that posterior medial approach to the tibial plateau? Um, probably one of my least favorite approaches in all of orthopedics. <laughs> <laughs> um, just because I just, I don't know, man, it, they just always, the, the wounds just seem to ooze and seem to swell and cause patient problems. But anyways, besides that point, uh, you are going to be uh, uh, mobilizing the Pez anterior anterior and medial head of the gastroc posterior to gain access to that uh, medial or posterior medial proximal tibia, and uh, most of the I, the nice part about most of these sort of fractures is that they are pure split fractures. There's not a lot of uh, joint depression associated with them, at least from what I've seen in my limited time. Uh, being a resident, but um, it, they uh, usually don't need a lot of uh, substances, whether that's autograft or something else to kind of backfill and fill a void, which is nice, but the uh, lateral uh, split depression or depression only fractures tend to do that. Um, what sort of substances or bone graft or anything like that are you uh, going to ask for preoperatively to make sure that you guys have it available in case you do need to backfill some of these bone voids yeah there are a lot of different graphs that the graft choices that you can use you can use autographs right. and people use a piece of the iliac bone uh, and they and they use some of that autograph but a lot of people tend to start to use these uh, these allografts these other synthetic components one being kind of that calcium phosphate and, you know, one of the reasons with that is being shown to have a lower rate of subsidence than autograft, and it has a higher compressive strength. So, you know, that it, those tend to do a good job of kind of keeping that uh, articular surface and stopping it from subsiding. So, again, big things to know about the calcium phosphate. It has a higher, highest compressive strength and it has a lower rate of subsidence than autograft. Now, you know, we talked a little bit about, you know, plating. We talked about, you know, buttress or using a plate in buttress mode for our posterior medial fragments as well as our split fragments. And I remember somebody telling it to me is you, you kind of put that first screw right where, we, right where you would put your thumb to reduce that fragment. That's kind of right where your plate would go uh, for those yeah. that, that are thinking about it and thinking about kind of buttressing it in general. But we spoke about plating. Lateral lock plating, we talked about dual incisions and dual approaches for that posterior medial and then anterior lateral fragment. But what are some indications for temporary external fixation for these tibial plateau fractures? Um, yeah, so the uh, severe soft tissue damage, the very high uh, uh, velocity injuries or, 
or very damaging injuries. Uh, polytrauma patients, uh, if there is an unstable joint associated with it, so some of that uh, like uh, medial and tibial plateau fractures that have a dislocation, and then some of these bicondylar fractures, uh, if they are due to a high energy mechanism, um, you, they're the ones that one you're going to want to watch out for for compartment syndrome, but also because of the amount of soft tissue stripping and soft tissue injury, uh, putting them in a temporary external fixator for one to two weeks and then having them come back uh, is really going to be the most beneficial uh, thing for these patients. But for the more simple fracture patterns, let's say they they fell from a height of three to five feet, their uh, isolated lateral uh, splits or, or split depression fractures, um, those I think are usually amenable to uh, primary uh, fixation. So uh, when we're talking about uh, fixing or at least temporizing these in an external fixator, how far away from the knee joint do you want your pins uh, to be placed? Yeah. So, you know, classic question, you want to be at least 15 millimeters distal to the knee joint to avoid putting the pins in the knee joint, right? Because that capsule continues to go about 14 millimeters or so distal to the knee joint. So you want to put those pins at least 15 millimeters or 1.5 centimeters distal to the knee joint in order to avoid septic arthritis of the knee. That is one of the, the thoughts and complications. So you don't want to put one of your x pins inside of the joint that is a uh, typically poor form. Um, <laughs> what are, uh, so what are some of the complications you know, we just talked about, you know, X-fixing for patients with severe soft tissue damage and, uh, you know, blisters and fracture blisters and, and, you know, open wounds, et cetera, et cetera. And so say, you know, we have, uh, we've had them in a temporary external fixator. We allowed their soft tissues to recover and, you know, seven to 10 days, or maybe even two weeks later, we went back and fixed it with, with mm -hmm. dual plating because they had a posterior medial and an anterior lateral uh, fragment, two incisions. It was very comminuted. It was a, it was a Shaster six. So it was metadiaphyseal uh, disassociation. Uh, what are some of the complications that can be seen uh, in patients with these tibial plateau fractures? Uh, the first things that really come to mind with any intraarticular injury um, for uh, the boards are really just for counseling patients in, in general, which to me is more important than any board exam really, but uh, is going to be that post-traumatic arthritis. Uh, that's going to be the most common complication just because you are uh, having a fracture through the joint, that joint, regardless of how well it's reduced, you're going to have uh, chondrocyte apoptosis and a lot of inflammatory mediators in there just causing destruction to the joint despite our best efforts at surgery. Um, but also malunion and non-union, especially for the highly comminuted, uh, a lot of soft, soft tissue injury uh, and soft tissue stripping uh, fractures. And then any of those with ligament instability or ones that are associated with uh, outright ligament rupture, um, I mean, it's, it's still, I, I don't think very well described or very well thought out on how to best fix these fractures plus ligament injuries just because of how poor some of these complications are. Um, but it's one of those like 
do you wait for the fracture to heal and the knee to get stiff, but then you don't want to put ligaments, new ligaments in a stiff knee. And so how, how do you best uh, treat these patients is still, I think, uh, going to be left for our generation of surgeons and the ones behind us uh, to really come up with better techniques to, to prevent stiffness and to prevent the post-traumatic arthritis. Yeah. Um, and uh, on the flip side of that, what are the sort of things uh, correlate with a satisfactory outcome in tibial plateau fractures? Yeah, so the most important thing is to kind of maintain that mechanical axis of the of the limb, right? Not to fix them and put them into 15 degrees of varus or, or they'll be showing up to your uh, arthroplastic clinic very early. Uh, you know, so you want to just make sure that, that you maintain the normal mechanical axis uh, of the limb. And, and so you were just talking about, you know, getting stiff and, and, you know, deciding whether or not we want to do a ligamentous reconstruction or wait for the bones to heal. But say, for example, this is something that didn't have a, any type of a ligamentous injury, but we fixed it. And, and this patient, you know, it's, it's three months after, so it's 12 weeks afterwards, you fix their uh, tibial plateau and they cannot get in up to 90 degrees of knee flexion. So they're, they're stuck at from zero to 45. Uh, what was the treatment option that's available to these, these patients? Yeah, so obviously uh, for the first uh, couple of months, you are working hard with their therapist to uh, kind of aggressively improve their range of motion without needing to take them back. But if they're at three months post-op and they're still very, very stiff, it's unlikely that that will improve with therapy alone. So um, those are the ones you're going to take back for an arthroscopic lysis of adhesions and a gentle manipulation under anesthesia, um, really just to uh, get them to a place where they can do things in life that will just really improve their quality of life. I mean, some of the things that we take for granted, like sitting in a car car uh, comfortably or sitting on the toilet comfortably or um, going up and down stairs. If you don't have 90 degrees of flexion, it's actually very hard to go up and down stairs. So um, getting them to that 90 degrees is preferred. Um, yeah. And uh, now that we've kind of belabored the point of uh, tibial plateau fractures, how about we move more distally into uh, the tibia shaft and uh, go over acceptable alignment for tibia shaft fractures to be treated without surgery. Yeah, this is the fun stuff. Uh, the shaft fractures you know, were very common. You'll definitely get uh, some of these in, in residence, not some, but hopefully you get a lot of these in residency is how common these fractures are. But again, so the acceptable alignment to treat tibia fr shaft fractures non-operatively is going to be varus or valgus um, within five degrees. So it wants to be less than five degrees of varus or valgus alignment. In the sagittal plane, you want your sagittal plane alignment to be uh, less than 10 degrees. So you can accept that just, just a tiny bit more of sagittal plane mount alignment than, uh, than varus or valgus. You want at least 50% of the bone to be touching. So greater than 50% of cortical apposition. You do not want your fracture to be shortened less than one centimeter. And you want to have that rotational alignment within 10 degrees. So again, uh, the the acceptable alignment to treat tibia shaft fracture non-operatively is varus and valgus less than five degrees. 
sagittal plane alignment less than 10 degrees, cortical apposition greater than 50%, shortening less than one centimeter, and rotational alignment within uh, 10 degrees. And other uh, tibia fractures that you can treat non-operatively are, are going to be these kind of stress fractures, you know, fractures that were or fractures where you that are incomplete. Um, those are all fractures that may undergo non-operative treatment and and this can be done a, a sorts of ways, but it can, you know, typically start off with a, you know a, a long leg cast, and and you have that for a period of time, you know, four six weeks or so, and then you get transitioned to a functional brace afterwards. So that will be the uh, treatment option and the, the the indications and the acceptable alignments of what a treatment would be for non-operative treatment. And, you know, it's just, just we're looking at these patients and, and we have an x-ray up on the screen and you see a, a long uh, a spiral distal third tibia shaft fracture. What is one thing that you have to think about every time that you that you don't want to miss uh, in patients that have these distal third spiral tibia shaft fractures? Yeah, you don't want to miss the extension down into the posterior malleolus uh, of the ankle. Um Really because of how non-displaced these fractures are, they're very difficult to pick up on uh, radiographs. Uh, and so it should really just be kind of uh, uh, ingrained into your brains that every time you see a spiral distal third to be a shaft fracture, you're ordering a CT scan. And it's one to to make sure that they don't have a posterior malleolus, but if they do, you can see the orientation of it so that fixation uh, during surgery can be performed. Um, just because if they are not picked up, the non-displaced fracture that you started off with, um, as that nail is inserted into the distal tibia, uh, it can uh, cause that fracture to displace. And then then it's a bigger issue to fix because it now it's displaced. Now you may have to actually open it, clamp it and reduce it. And uh, so it's just a kind of a pain in the butt, but if you're able to catch it when it's non-displaced and put a couple of screws in um, uh, percutaneously prior to the nail placement, then your life will be much easier. Uh, yeah. You don't want to miss that. And then, just like you said, go and, and nail it. And then you look at your, uh, you're getting your final floor shots in your lateral and you see this displaced posterior mouth fragment. It's like, oh man, crap. You know, yeah. You don't wanna, <laughs> you don't want that just to restart. Yeah. Um, so uh, with these tibia shaft fractures, you did a great job going over the kind of acceptable alignment parameters for non-operative treatment. Um, but what about uh, these unstable uh, tibia shaft fractures? Uh, what are you going to be doing for those? Yeah, so the, the treatment of choice in, in these, it's like we said, these unstable tibia shaft fractures that do not meet um, operative or, or non-operative uh, measures, these are going to be ones that I think the preferred treatment of choice for most physicians now is going to be reamed, statically locked intramedullary nailing. Uh, reaming, meaning you use a reamer and you ream out the canal prior to uh, placing a nail in and then statically locked, meaning there, there are different holes, uh, options in the tibial nails. And there's a, an, a, an option to statically lock or pretty much put a screw through the hole. That way it doesn't move. And then there's another option in a lot of these nails, which is a dynamic option, which allows um, 
which allows a little bit of motion at the ball. And we'll, it, we can kind of talk about that a little bit later. But, you know, our, our main treatment is going to be reamed, statically locked, inch medulloid nailing. And since we're just talking about reaming, I guess we can go ahead and, and, and touch base on that. But what are some advantages to reaming in closed tibia shaft fractures? Um, well, one is uh, it has been shown uh, to result in improved union rates with fewer complications. And uh, the, uh, so that's, I think the main advantage is you have improved uh, union rates, but also reaming allows you to use larger and stronger nails just because of the size of the radius that help improve the overall stability uh, of the construct um, that, I mean, as we know through the AO course where uh, an intramedullary nail can be thought of as similar to a bridge plate, which is uh, kind of getting that, uh, not, not the absolute stability that you are expecting of an articular fracture, but you're getting that relative stability. Um, but you don't want it to be such a small nail that there is so much movement happening at the fracture site. So a larger nail can help provide that stability. Um, but the uh, downside of reaming is you do destroy some of that endosteal circulation, um, but it, it does have the potential to return uh, by about eight to 12 weeks. So it kind of comes with a, yeah, you can, use it to provide some of the bone graft to the fracture site. You can use it to uh, use a larger nail and have a little bit better union rates, but do know that it does kind of destroy some of that endosteal circulation uh, of the bone um, early on that needs to be reestablished two to three months down the road. Um, yeah. But uh, uh, as we know, uh, with uh like we just talked about with patellas and all of that, uh, operating around the knee does uh, lead to uh, more hardware-based complications. And what's what would you kind of counsel a patient on uh, when we're talking about an intramedullary nail for the tibia shaft? Yeah, again, they're talking about the, the art of doctoring and, and letting these people know like, hey, you know, this... Uh, the most common com complication with tibia nail is going to be anterior knee pain, which can happen anywhere up to 50 to 75% of the time. So when you talk to these patients and you uh, consent them preoperatively, it's always good to let them know that, Hey, you know, the, the nail is inserted through your knee. Um, most play in, mo in, in most, yeah, pretty much all tibial nails, the nail is going to be inserted through your knee. And, you know, the, a common complication of this is patients can uh, complain of anterior knee pain. This actually happened yesterday. I was at a, um, covering a rugby game and you know it was, it was people from all over the nation that, that come in and play and then one lady came and got taped up and the first thing she said was oh man they i broke my tibia before and they had to put this nail on my knee and oh, my knee has been killing me since then uh you know they had to, she had to get taped up for it so it is a real life thing it does happen and it is very common for people to have anterior knee pain so that's the most common complication with tibial nailing um now, now where is the ideal start point for tibial nailing. We always see this. I always see this as they show you a picture on uh, on the screen and they, they make you choose A, B, or C. 
uh, for where you would start your nail on an AP and, and, a, and, a, and a, uh, in the lateral view of the knee. So uh, mm -hmm. where is that? What's the ideal start point? Yeah, so you want to aim to on a, a perfect AP of the knee where you have a kind of 50% overlap of the proximal fibula. Uh, you're uh, looking to have the pin start just uh, medial to the lateral tibial spine. And uh, then on the perfect lateral of the knee where the uh, femoral condyles are lined up, you want it to be really anterior to any intraarticular knee structures. Like you don't want to go through the uh, intermeniscal ligament. You don't want to be so posterior that you're impinging on the ACL attachment, but you also don't want to be so anterior that you're at the tibial tubercle, uh, kind of down that anterior proximal tibia. So kind of want to be right at the cusp of the uh, kind of transition from the articular surface down to the shaft on the lateral. And yeah. um, if you are not uh, perfect with your starting point um, and you have a proximal third tibia shaft fracture, what sort of uh, deformity uh, can occur? Yeah, so this is that classic, and this is always testing, uh, always a, a question when you're in cases to know that. But with these proximal uh, third tibia shaft fractures, they tend to go into valgus and procurvatum. If you just think about what are some of the, the muscular attachments, right? So you have your patellar tendon, which goes and uh, attaches on your tibial uh, tubercle, which is going to pull that piece up. And then you have your gastrox, which goes and attaches at our distal femur, which kind of uh, contributes towards the extension of the knee joint, all right? So if your knee joint is kind of extended, so you think about that apex anterior, if that makes sense. Again, you have your uh, patellar tendon attaching to your tibial tubercle, which is going to pull that up. And you also have your gastrox, which attaches to the distal femur, which is going to contribute towards your overall knee extension. But at the fracture site, you have your apex will be anterior and you have some procrevatum. And you also have valgus, you have your anterior tibialis, which uh, attaches at the proximal tibia, which can contribute towards that, that valgus moment. So again, know that the common deformity seen in proximal third tibia shaft fractures are going to be valgus and procovatum. And since we're talking about this, uh, this common deformity, this valgus procovatum deformity, what are some ways to combat this when we are going to uh, treat this these patients with intramedullary nailing for you know, again our proximal third tibia shaft fractures. This deformity definitely does happen. <laughs> I've yes. seen it, and it's a and it's a pain uh, to deal with unless you do the kind of correct uh, little algorithm in order to treat it. So. First things first is uh, correct your starting point. So like I said earlier, your initial starting point is just medial to the lateral tibial spine. For these proximal third fractures, you may even cheat a little bit more lateral to that uh, because as you go more medial, uh, the nail will sit more medial and will allow for that to sit in more valgus. So to prevent that, cheat a little bit more lateral with your starting point and cheat just a touch more proximal uh, to treat the uh, procurvatum. Um, 
if that's not enough to deal with it, uh, you can use polar screws or blocking screws, which uh, this is probably one of the most commonly tested things about these sort of fractures is where the blocking screws are placed. And you want to place them in the um, concavity of the deformity. So uh, when you're talking about a valgus procurvatum deformity, the concavity is going to be lateral and uh, for the valgus, and the concavity is going to be posterior for the procurvatum. And essentially, you're placing these screws where you don't uh, want the nail to go. Essentially, you're yeah. Um, so they're gonna you're gonna be putting these screws posterior and lateral. Uh, other ways to combat it, and uh, they, to me, have I have seen more success out of these rather than blocking screws, because uh, I have a notorious uh, history in my program to be too aggressive with the blocking screws and uh, breaking them. <laughs> oh, so, <no. laughs> uh, um, I like using a small uh, kind of unicortical plate uh, to hold the reduction. Uh, while the nail is being placed, uh, you can use a semi-extended and super patellar nailing to really assist in the ease of nail placement, but it's not been shown to improve the deformity itself. It's just an easier way to put the nail in. And then the use of multiple locking screws, uh, kind of using those oblique holes and the uh, medial to lateral screws for the uh, proximal portion of the nail. Um, but again, uh, the more commonly tested things are uh, correct your starting point more lateral and a little bit more anterior and then use blocking screws. Thank you all for listening to yet another episode of the Nail It Ortho podcast. And I feel like I feel like you all know what I'm about to say. Go ahead and hit the subscribe button. If you have not followed us on Instagram already, follow us at Nailed It Ortho on Facebook at Nailed It Ortho. If there are any questions or anything that you left out or anything that you think we just got completely wrong in this review, please send us an email at NailedItOrtho at gmail.com and we'll be looking out for that and we will respond and try to answer whatever questions you have. So again, hit the subscribe button and please leave us a review. And until next time.